0: Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. This podcast is a manifestation of our interconnected lives and we wish to keep it free at all costs, if you can say that. So... We are dependent on the generosity of you, our listeners. So, please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash kd and either use the donate button or just bookmark the Amazon portal. We receive a small percentage of however much you pay for whatever you bought, nothing extra for you, but a tangible contribution, if small, for us. You could also sign up for a free trial with the voluminous audible.com. We get something out of that, too. We thank you for the support and allowing us to continue presenting Krishnadas's excellent talks.
2: You know, when we start doing a lot of practices, a lot of stuff starts to come up. Some people get depressed, some people get angry, some people get, um, how shall we say, horny. <laughs> ah, I see where you come in. Some people feel, you know, you feel all kinds of stuff starts to come up. When you bring more juice into the system, it goes into all, wherever it's going to use the flowing. So we have to figure out a way to deal with that stuff because we're working, we're aiming at moving more deeply into our own hearts. And if every time we move to our own hearts, our stuff rips us off and takes us on a trip for three or four lifetimes, it's going to be a problem. So. Well, you know, I like to talk about that stuff, because nobody likes to talk about that. That's why I like to. My guru was uh, a piece of work. You know, he used to say one time, this, this guy came uh, to see him and talking to him at great length about a whole bunch of shit, all the good work that he was going to do and service he was going to do. And when he left, he just looked at his, one of his great devotees named Dara. And he said, Dara, people come here and they think they can fool me. I go on fooling the whole universe. And people come and think they can fool me. He knew everything. He could see through any amount of bullshit that anybody could put out there. Even when the person didn't know he was putting out bullshit, Maharaji, he was just somebody, he had completely clear vision Total clarity, total ability to know what was really going on. Not just here, there, but everywhere. And he was showing that to us all the time. So one time, uh, I don't remember the whole story exactly, but some guy was having like a midlife crisis or something, and he came to the temple, and Maharaji was sitting on the bridge over the river just outside the temple. And this guy had all these questions that he wanted to ask Maharishi. right? He's, as soon as he gets on the bridge and starts walking towards him, Maharishi starts yelling at him, telling him the answers to all his questions, you know? And this guy says, uh, so one of the things he said at the time was that he said, you know, um, one must do something. One must, you know, and Maharishi always talking about the repetition of the name, as being not only the easiest practice to do, but but one of the most efficacious practices that you could ever do. One of the practices that works the best for us at this time in the universe. And um, so this guy he said, but Baba, I don't feel any devotion. And he said, well, but you have to do it anyway. If you don't do it, then what's going to happen? And he said, repeat the name whether you're feeling angry or sad or happy or whatever variation on that theme. Just keep on doing this practice. And eventually, this presence within us will be uncovered. Eventually, we'll become aware of the God within us, the light, the love that lives within us. If you don't do it, well, then what's going to happen? Nothing. Right? If you don't do a practice, let's just say a practice, anything that you consider a practice, then nothing's going to happen. And we all have a million reasons why we don't do more or why we don't pay attention when we're doing the little bit that we're doing. That's okay. But you've got to keep doing. You've got to keep making that effort to pay attention, to do so, a little bit of practice every day. The most important thing is doing something every day, even if it's five minutes. Five really good minutes a day it will change your life. Just you've got to promise to turn the phone off. That's all for five minutes. Do it on the toilet. It doesn't matter where you do it or how you do it, as long as you give your full awareness to it. For five minutes. And then go out and rob a bank. It doesn't make any difference. But you must do something regularly or nothing's going to happen. Doing a practice is like putting a a house plant in the sunlight for a few minutes every day. It gets the light it needs. Then you can put it wherever else you want to put it. But if you don't put it in the sunlight, it's not going to grow. Period. Amen. That's the end of it. See you later. Bye. Nothing else to talk about. That's all you have to do, something. Five minutes a day. And they say that the name and what is named, or you could say God if you wanted to, I don't particularly like that word, but the name and what is named are not different. This is a really big thing. We start off thinking okay, I'm going to do this, so I'm going to sit here and go, Ram, 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 Ram. And the whole time, you know, you're thinking about shopping later, thinking about the things you forgot to do, five minutes is up, okay, I'm gone. Eventually, over time, you'll actually be there for 10 or 15 seconds at a time, or maybe one second at a time. And it's an amazing experience to actually be there because we're never here. We wake up in the morning and we're in dreamland all day long until we fall asleep at night. And we're never present, we're never paying attention. We're just bouncing off of one thing into another thing and bouncing and bouncing. And all we do, as I've said so many times before, is think about ourselves all the time. Ugh. It is so fucking boring and we don't stop. All we do all day long is think about it. <laughs> Or. That's what I usually do. And more than that, we actually believe everything we think. Now, that, that's the definition of insanity. Can you believe that? Yes. I can. We believe everything we think. I feel like shit today. We believe that. Or that guy doesn't like me. We believe everything. You know, we walk out there and a billion things hit us from a billion different directions. And we have a million reactions, and every reaction we think is absolutely true. It's like say you work in an office and one day one of your co-workers walks by and doesn't, you know, smile at you, and you go like, son of a brush. What the hell is wrong with this guy? What did I do to him? And you work yourself into an uproar, and then you find out he just got diagnosed with cancer. And he might not have been thinking about you that minute. God forbid that somebody in the world is not thinking about us. When we're obviously the most important thing in the universe. Nuts. We're also nuts. It's crazy. Hmm. So these practices are de insanitizing practices they undilute us. It's not like we learn anything. It's not that we figure anything out. But over time, we actually are undiluted. Little by little. Because we're completely deluded. We have no clue what's going on. All we know is what we think and feel. And where does that stuff come from? I know where it came from in my life. So, the amazing thing is that we could even be interested in doing a practice at all. Now, that's extraordinary. That's really extraordinary. Why aren't we just home drinking beer and having a good time? Well, today would be hangover day, probably, after the weekend, and indigestion day after all the burgers we would have eaten. right? Why aren't we there? Something in us is longing for something. We don't know what it is, but we don't know what it is, and we don't know who's longing for it. But we're still here doing something. And that's an extraordinary thing. Why could that possibly be happening? Why should it happen at all? Is it because we're better than other people? Maybe. (laughs) I probably am. I don't know about you. No. It's just something that we feel we need. There's a part missing, a piece missing. And we don't know what it is, but we know it's missing, so we're looking for it we don't even we're not even really committed to looking for it because we don't really believe it exists, but we're looking for it anyway, because there's not much else to do, and nothing's on t v <laughs> So even with that wimpy, miserable minuscule longing, we actually might find something because that's something that comes from two things: one thing is. The, our own karmas, the, our own actions that, that are put into mo- we put into motion before they say, and grace grace is that longing in our own hearts for air conditioning <laughs> but you know in all the books, they always talk about the musk, deer. musk is a really beautiful scent it 's intoxicating it 's really extraordinary. They always talk about the musk deer who wanders around intoxicated by the scent and looking all over for where it's coming from, you know. And it's actually hidden in its own navel. And it's going around, where is this musk? Where is this? And so it falls in love with one little musk deer and it says, oh, you don't have it. You know, where is that musk deer? And it's in its own navel. And that's where we're at. we we got... We taste. We must have tasted something, or we wouldn't be here. This would be completely ridiculous. Come on, how ridiculous would this be? <laughs> Sitting around, singing names, singing sounds. We don't even know what the hell they mean. It's completely absurd. Try explaining this to your third grade teacher when you go back to your, high, your, you know, your elementary school after forty years. What did you do this weekend? Well, I sat cross-legged and sang Sitaram for twenty-four hours. Said, You'll call the cops. You know. So there's a part of us that's really longing for something in spite of how stupid we get with the rest of the world and our daily life and how involved and how lost and how reactive and how, you know, all that stuff. That's still looking for something all the time, it's looking, trying to find that missing piece. But because we are human beings, mostly, uh, w- and identified with our mind and our th- body and our emotions, we look, so to speak, outside of ourselves for that. We look outside of ourselves. We try to find it in another person, in a guru, so-called guru, in, in something, in, in, an, in music and stuff. We're always looking outside of ourselves to connect with something that's going to connect us to that feeling that we're looking for. But that, unfortunately, will never work for more than three minutes at the most. It's just not gonna work. It works for a while, and then all your projections kind of crash to the floor, and you go, and then, you know, then you have, you're back where you started from after the divorce papers and the lawyer's fees and all that bullshit. So, and that's just, you know, we're always looking outside of ourselves for something, and it's just not out there. These names that we're singing are the names of our own hearts, our own true being. Yes, they are the names of the so-called Hindu deities. But what does that mean? Anybody here know what a Hindu deity is? We don't know what that is. We read about it in books. Maybe you've lived in India. I've lived in India. I still don't know what it is because it's not something different than who I am. And I don't know who I am, so so go ahead, run away. <laughs> so labels, you know, whatever you call it, it doesn't matter what you call it. It's still in here. It's in here. There's no sitaram outside of our own true nature, not our egos, not our small self. There's a lot of outside of that. In fact, everything is outside of that, so to speak. Every one of us thinks we are who we think we are. You think you're you. You think you're you. You think you're you. I think I'm me. That's, that's, That's the state of the world. And if, I, if you think you're you and I think I'm me and you have something that I want, I'm going to have to kill you to get it. And then we have governments and politics and war and aggression and all that stuff because we're identified with ourselves, our small-s selves. And stuff is in limited quantity, limited supply. So if you have it, that means there's less for me. So I've got to do something to you to get it away from you. But love and happiness are not outside of us in limited quantities. So I can actually let you live. Aren't you lucky? I can let you be who you are and be who I am, and I can have all the love that I need because it doesn't come from outside of me. Nobody controls it. Nobody owns it. It's who. I am, that's who you are. Love, real love, is not something you fall in or fall out of. It doesn't come. It doesn't go. It lasts 24 hours a day. This, once I was very much in love with somebody, and I was telling Mr. Tuareg, my Indian father and my best friend, I, I was telling him all about it. And he listened very patiently, you know, and he said, My boy, he said... Relationships are business. He said, do your business. Enjoy. He didn't say don't do your business. He said do your business, and he said enjoy your business. He said but love. He said love is lasts twenty four hours a day. Love is what's here. It's what who we are. It's all around us. It's within us. It's without us. It doesn't go anywhere. You can't get it from anywhere. We can only recognize it within us little by little and i say little by little gradually because if it happens too fast they put you away when you start wandering naked through the streets of new york you know they're going to put you away so maharaj used to say go on keep repeating your your lying false ram ram go on keep doing it he said one of these days You'll get it right once. You're out of here. That's it. So we are training ourselves to be able to be completely present, totally concentrated, absolutely aware, and present in the moment. And at that moment, we say Ram, and Ram manifests, and that's it. Ram manifests as whatever shape or form we, we want and we are inside. But we can't do that. So we have to go on repeating our false Ram Ram. False in the sense of we're completely not paying attention. You know? we're, not, we're not 100% there. We're not even 3% of up 2% there. But over time and practice, and they call it practice because you've got to do it. Over time and practice, those that name those names begin to um, deepen and widen, and begins to feel more. You begin to uh, feel more comfortable in the practice, and the mind kind of settles in a little bit. It doesn't go so far away for so long. You can't just grab the mind and say, "Stay here." It doesn't. Where is it that you can do that? But over time, you train your, your yourself to be more aware and more present. And every time you go off on some trip, you come back. And some trip means, oh, you know, I don't feel good today. Or why did that person leave me? And why did this happen? And how could I do that? I was so stupid. I said that. And, you know, all the stuff we do, all the stories we tell ourselves all the time, that's just takes us away from here. So through a practice, little by little, we start to stay home more. And we don't go so far away. And when we go away, we come back more quickly. And eventually, we'll be here, completely here. And when we say that name, boom, the door is open, and we'll we'll find out. We'll see, we'll recognize who we are, and that love will we'll become more aware of that love and the presence within us. And along the way, lots of things happen. But when you're doing a practice, the whole practice is very simple. You sing, and when you notice you're not paying attention, you pay attention. And then you notice you're not paying attention, you pay attention. And then you notice you're not paying attention, and you pay attention. That's all you do. That's the whole practice. You don't have to, this is not a, Tibetans have these visualization practices where you start at the feet and you you, you, you start imagining and visualizing the toenail and what the color is and the curve and this and then there's this and you build this whole deity in your, in your awareness and it's a concentration practice and then at one point that deity takes life but that's not what we're doing here. That practice takes partic- a lot of a lot of these practices are given with an initiation and a transmission of the so-called energy to do the practice, and there's a lot of guidance that's necessary for those kind of intense practices. Me, I am not qualified for those things. I've never done them, probably never will. This is what I do, and I just sing. And when I'm not paying attention, I come back. That's all I do. That's all I'm ever going to do. So eventually you, the, the, the flow of the name starts to deepen. And you kind of lay back into it and you just flow along with it with complete awareness. And it's not tight. It's not willful. It's not aggressive in any way. It's just a natural feeling of being here and flowing and relaxing into this open space. And it may take, you know, it may take a while for that to happen. But so what? You got something else to do? Seriously. Are you too busy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. Don't do it. But remember, it's the longing in your own heart that's dragging you into this in the first place. So where are you going to go where you're not going to have that? So it's better to get with the program that you're already on. As soon as, you know, with as much of yourself as possible. takes a little bit of looking at yourself and seeing what's useful in your life and what's not. And then that kind of weird kind of uh, perverse satisfaction you get from doing things that you know are bad for you. you know? I'll drink to that. But you're doing them very differently, really. Like, in my case, I didn't get addicted to drugs until after Maharaji. How cool is that, eh? (laughs) Because if I had gotten addicted before, I would have been dead. So he saved me, and then after he sent me back to America, and I got completely strung out on cocaine, it was very different, because I had been with him. Even though I was strung out, you could say he was here. If I had gotten strung out and I didn't know him, that would have been over. But since he was still here, we were both strung out. <laughs> and that's a different feeling. You're not alone. You know, it's a very So a lot of times we do stuff that we know is not in our own best interest. But once you've... Once you recognize that you're on a path, then everything you do becomes, like Ram Dass said, grist for the mill. It becomes a part of the path. You, there's a certain kind of awareness that's there, in, it, despite your best efforts to kill it. <laughs> and it may not feel good. It may feel really bad, but it doesn't feel as bad as it would have felt if you weren't if you didn't really know that there was a path and that you were on it. There's a difference. And it's not a difference that you can take to the bank. It's a difference that's just inherent in your own nature. It's a presence that you've, you've invited into your own being that is there, regardless of what you go through. And when you finish going through of it, it's still there. And every time you come back after one of these trips to uh, whatever, Palookaville that we go on, <laughs> that presence is still there and it's deeper because you just reamed out a huge part of your heart. Maharaji never told us what to do. Nor did he tell us what not to do. So when I came back to America, I was, and and, and even with him, I was free to do what I wanted. Of course, what I wanted was to be with him. And the only thing he did say was go away, (laughs) you know. So he sent me back to America. But he didn't say what I shouldn't do, pretty much. He gave me free reign. And as a result, I almost hung myself, you know. But I survived. The point is that you have to live your life. You can't try to squeeze yourself into some shape that you're not really. Because you see people, for instance, wearing holy clothes and looking so peaceful, and you think you want to be like that. So you decide, OK, I'll be celibate for the rest of my life. And uh, then you go crazy because you don't can't handle the energy. But what good was that? Maharaji was married. He had children. You know, it's a different thing. This is a different thing. This is your whole life is part of it. There's nothing you can't do. There's nothing you shouldn't do. You should try The only thing you can try to do is not to hurt people as much as possible. That would be simply what I would say. Try to do the best you can, not to cause suffering. But in spite of ourselves, we cause suffering all the time. To ourselves, as well as a lot of other people. Because... That's human nature, but if you add a practice into that equation, over time it transforms everything. If you don't add a practice, you don't add a practice. And the practice is a ripening, uh, a ripening behavior or something. It ripens our karmas. It ripens our lives. You know, I asked Siddhi Ma once if I should meditate. Siddhi Ma is Maharaji's great devotee. I said, Ma, should I meditate? She said, well, Krishna, she said, in the 40 years I was with Maharaji, he never once asked me to meditate. I went, how could that be? I thought meditation was like, you know, you had to. Right? Doesn't every, every book you ever read said, you must meditate. Right? But she said that he, all he did was say that she should repeat the name. She should do bhajan, remember the name, and that these deep meditative states would arise naturally over time as the name ripened her karmas and ripened her. And that if we try to use will to blast ourselves into deeper meditative states, uh, there's always a backlash. Will is a very tricky thing. You need enough will to move yourself in the right direction. But if you push too hard, there's always, you know, a whiplash, a backlash. You just have to kind of get over, you know, you have to kind of get with it. You have to be happy being who you are, as you are right now. And not try to create yourself in some image that you have. That this would be a better me if I could do that. That's complete bullshit. We have to learn to be slightly content, not too much, just a little bit. My father used to say, enough is too much. (laughs) Slightly content, just being who we are with all our stuff. And then when we do our practices, then that kind of edge is not there anymore of trying to make something happen, trying to get something, trying to be something and that we think would be, would be better, you know? OK, so I'm going to read something to you, just about this. This is from a book called Going On Being, Going On Being, by Mark Epstein, who is a Buddhist psychiatrist. We'll start here and see what happens. The rough outline of the Buddha's life story was familiar to me. A provincial prince, he was raised by his overprotective father to never see old age illness or death. See, there'd been a prophecy saying that the young boy would either become the ruler of the world or a fully enlightened Buddha. And his father wanted him obviously to be a king and take over the kingdom and be be that, and not leave home and become a Buddha. But renouncing his family and privilege at the age of 29, he became an ascetic, wandering through the forests of northern India in search of his freedom. Sitting under a tree in what is now the village of Bodhgaya, after exhausting all the spiritual disciplines of his time, he awoke to the truth of emptiness. Don't worry about that word. Call it fullness, okay? But his process of awakening was more complicated than I had initially imagined. There was a pivotal pivotal event hidden within his years of renunciation that had all kinds of psychological implications. There, in that critical period, after forsaking all that was dear to him, but before his awakening under the Bodhi tree, was a little-known vignette about a childhood memory that was the turning point in his life. This event also involved a recovery and an enrichment of the self, and it set the stage for his ultimate realization. That his memory had psychodynamic implications is undeniable. It came just at his point of maximum vulnerability, as he was attempting with all his might to subdue himself through penance and starvation. Okay, Penance and starvation. Doesn't that sound good? (laughs) Why do we do that to ourselves all the time? Aren't we doing that all the time? I've got to do this. I've got to be like that. I've got to, I want this. I have to do this. I have to do that. I'm going to do this way. Penance and starvation, modern style. The Buddha, the Buddha to be, Gautama of the Sakya clan, left his wife, newborn son, palace and kingdom and struck out on his own, pursuing the available spiritual practices of his culture. This was a big step, but not a radical one. This was the traditional modality of the spiritual seeker in ancient India, and there were many such seekers. Gotama found several well-known teachers and perfected a variety of ascetic practices. But unable to penetrate the riddle of his own being, he grew increasingly frustrated. His renunciation became stronger and stronger, like a modern-day anorectic. Gotama pushed the limit of his own endurance and refused the least possible nourishment. With five companions looking on in anticipation of the fruits of his penance, he struggled to reach beyond the limits of his mind and body. As the Buddha later recounted it, I thought, suppose I take very little food, say a handful each time, whether it's bean soup or lentil soup or pea soup. I did so. And as I did so, my body reached a strait of extreme emaciation. My limbs became like jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems because of eating so little. My ribs jutted out as gaunt as as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. The gleam of my eyes sunk far down in their sockets, looked like something, looked like the gleaming, Thing scary. What okay, blah, blah, blah. Looked like the gleaming... Well, this is something wrong. Okay. Now, see, this is what happened. It went to someplace else. Same Buddha, different place. <laughs> if I made water or evacuated my bowels, I fell over on my face there. If I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair, rotted at its roots, fell away from my body as I rubbed because of eating so little. The Buddha was on the brink of self eradication. In trying to subdue himself and the restless passions that he had already identified as part of his problem, he succumbed to the use of force, beating himself into submission as the ascetics of his time counseled. He was trying to go deeply into his problems with an eye toward getting rid of them for once and for all. The Buddha, it seems, was once headed down a path of self-abuse. He was human, too, subject to the same kinds of psychic pressures that afflict most of us. And he seemed to have felt an unworthy, as unworthy as any late 20th century initiate into psychotherapy. While this approach of self-subjugation may sound alien at first, it is not actually so far removed from the kinds of strategies that many people still employ. The self-starvation of anorexia and the incessant self-criticism of the judging mind, recognize that, are still strategies that people employ. Unworthiness takes many, many forms, but at its heart is a confusion about one's own promise, about who we are and what we're worthy of and what, what we are going to be when we finally are who we are. The Buddha was close to destroying himself when he suddenly took his attention in another direction. And one of those moments, like that in which a chronic smoker finally decides to quit his habit, the Buddha saw that he had reached his limit. At his most forlorn point, forlorn point, he started to question himself, make a remarkable turnaround that established joy as the platform upon which the entire promise of enlightenment is based. This is really a big thing. I remember I used to sit with Maharaji. I get up in the morning, I take my bath, I put on my clothes, holy clothes, and I go sit with them. And one day I realized I was waiting for something to happen. I was just waiting all the time for something to happen, right? And I realized my idea of enlightenment was someplace that I wouldn't be. Hello, right? Psychotherapy 101, unworthiness. If I I had so much self-loathing, there was no possibility that I would be ever worthy of enlightenment. So if it was going to be enlightenment, it would mean I wouldn't be there. And every day I woke up and I was still here. That wasn't good. Now, you see, if if there's one thing that enlightenment isn't, that's the thing. (laughs) I know that's perfectly clear. He made a remarkable turnaround. This is the turnaround that we're all gonna have to make. And he established joy, happiness, as the platform upon which the promise, entire promise of enlightenment is based. Joy, happiness, enlightenment, self-knowledge. It's based on joy. Buddha says, I thought, whenever a monk or a Brahmin has felt painful, racking, piercing feeling due to striving, it can equal this, but cannot exceed it. By this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction higher than the human state, worthy of no- the noble one's knowledge and vision. Might there be another way to enlightenment? So, right. He's sitting there trying to kill himself, just like we do every day. But we don't think of it like that. We think of it like, oh, I'm just too busy to pay attention. I have to go to work. I can't think about God now. I can't be good to people. I'm too, I don't have enough. I can't give. All the millions of ways that we turn off the world and turn off ourselves all day long, every day, because it's what we were taught to do. That's what our parents did. That's what their parents did. That's what everybody around us did. So that's what we do. And But we think now we're spiritual, so we're not doing that. Bullshit. We're doing it more now, but we just think that's spiritual. This thought, might there be another way to enlightenment, proved to be critical. It opened up the memory that at first must have seemed irrelevant to the Buddhist question. I can imagine him trying to brush it away, a disturbing thought echoing from the canyons of childhood, of little interest to this starving forest ascetic. But, like an association in psychotherapy, the memory had a hidden meaning, and the Buddha did not ignore it at all. Trusting in his own psychic process, he gave it full attention and probed for what it might reveal. The memory centered as did his subsequent enlightenment around a tree. In the midst of self-punishment, Gotama remembered a time of wholeness under a tree, an episode of pleasure tugged at his mind. Quote, I thought of a time when my Sakyan father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unwholesome things, I had entered upon and abode in the first meditation, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. Reflecting upon his time under the rose apple tree watching his father work, the Buddha remembered a simple pleasure, that had sprung from his own state of mind, one that compared to the fruits of concentration meditation. In other words, he entered naturally a very deep state of meditation just from sitting under this tree on a beautiful day. He actually entered into a very deep state, which is normally entered to through concentration practice. Under the canopy of the protective arbor, and his father's benevolent but non-interfering presence, the young child experienced a taste of what the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan called joissance, the joy that is born out of relaxed contemplation, the pleasure that is being. In the midst of his ascetic practices, he had lost touch with that simple happiness. Suddenly it came flooding back to him. Might that be the way to enlightenment? The incredulous Buddha thought to himself. Then following up that memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. So it goes on a little bit. But the point is, you know, we're very busy people. We may sing a few minutes every day. We may do a little, count our breaths a few minutes every day, do a little japa. But this guy, Buddha, had given up everything in order to find what we're looking for. And he was doing it 24-7. Okay? He wasn't saving anything for later. He had no DVR to program to watch the Sopranos later after enlightenment. He was, it was 100%. 100%. And any great being who has found it has given 100%. And that's just what Maharaji was saying. Go on repeating your lying false ram ram. One of these days, you'll say it right, meaning 100%, and that's it. So what he found was that there was this simple sense of well-being within him. that wasn't destroyed by all the hard practices he was doing. It it transcended all those hard practices. It surrounded all those hard practices. It permeated all those self-abuse that he was putting on himself in the name of finding something. And he recognized how wrong that was. Not wrong as in right and wrong, but how useless it was. Because he was at a point where if he did any more, the body wasn't going to go. And then what? Where did he have then? If we're 10 minutes for, late for lunch, we get a headache. And this guy was eating this much food a day just to barely keep the body alive so he could try to find, to subdue all the passion, all the emotion, all the stuff that we carry around with us so he could get through the door. But then he found out that that wasn't where the door was at all the door he found in this sense of well-being that we have, each one of us within us, which is what we're out of touch with, which is why we look for it everywhere else but in our own navel, so to speak. This simple, natural sense of well-being. When you plant a seed, you just don't throw it on the sidewalk. If you really want it to grow, you prepare the soil, you put fertilizer and all kinds of other shit in there. Then you put the seed in, you cover it up and you water it and you do what's best for that seed. So that you could call your intention. When we do a spiritual practice, our intention is what is the most important thing. If we just like sit down and go, da, 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 OK, bye. That's just like throwing the seat on the sidewalk. So what we're talking about here today is our intention and where we're going, how to get there, and what we, should, what we could be aiming for. Not some fantasy about divine beings flying around in the sky in chariots, but living right here on Earth in a good way every day, amongst other humans, which is where we spend our time with people that we hate. (laughs) This is where we're going to be, class, for the rest of our lives. Naji once said to me, he was in the subway, and he was doing some practice in the subway, and he... He thought to himself, he looked around the subway, you know, and there's the usual, you know, drug people and crazy people and you know, people coming back from work and, you know, all kinds of people. And he looked around and he thought, like, what if I was going to spend the rest of my life with these people in this subway car? Well, am I going to sit here like this the whole time, you know? He said, I would have to kind of like, you know, live with them. So, you know, I'd have to find a way to be with them. And guess what? We're in the subway car. We're not going nowhere. We're staying in the subway car the rest of this life. And if we walk through the car worried about this one and fearful of that one and longing for this one and pushing this one away, and grab, then our lives are going to be filled with all those emotions. So we have to find a way to not only get in touch with that well-being within us, but to include everybody in that. So there's two types of practice. There's the practice of finding the well-being, coming into contact with that in ourselves, and then the second part of the practice is allowing people in and not anticipating violence from people, not anticipating hurt from people, and so that we're out there with our walls up with the scouts up above, and all the guns ready to fire. So the first part of the practice is paying attention, and hopefully, gradually, but inevitably, coming back into contact with that sense of well-being and and simple joy. I hate that word, joy. There must be a better word for it. I like well-being. It's not so personal. That simple sense of well-being, of all rightness inside of us. And if we're all right, what was that book? I'm Okay, You're Okay? I never read that. Maybe I should. That was like a 60s kind of pop psychotherapy book, wasn't it? I'm Okay, You're Okay? You remember the 60s? Anybody here? Let me put my glasses on. Oh, yeah. Somebody must remember. So, you know, huh? Okayness, yeah, okayness or rightness, sense of well-being. You know, that's that's who we are. That's what these names that we're chanting are the names of. That place of well-being within us, and by repeating the name, it's not. We're not. We're not hypnotizing ourselves. We're de, deluding ourselves. From all the storylines that we see, all the movies that we're watching as we go through our day, the movies of our longing, of our fear, our desire, our shame, our guilt, our, all our stuff, which is out there all the time. That's what we see when we go through our day. And everybody fits into a particular part of our movie. You know, If you look a particular way, you become an object of lust. If you look another way, you become an object of fear. This is what we do. people. We fit people. Naturally, they just fit into our movie. They play a part in our movie. And the movie doesn't stop. So the only way to kind of pull ourselves back from that movie is practice. And then the more in touch with that all rightness that we feel, then it's easy to extend, to invite or allow people. You don't even have to invite anybody in. (laughs) Whenever Maharaj used to arrive at Dada's house, he would come at any time, day or night, any day of the year, but within minutes people would start arriving. He didn't send out invitations. But people knew. They just would show up. And when Dada said, said to him, Baba, should I call this one or that one? He said, ah, Dada, what is this? Your daughter's wedding? <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was a piece of work. Yeah, you can't imagine... Thank you for listening to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. We really appreciate your support and hope you'll continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash kd and clicking on the donate button or using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste.